you know, I can see why taking the emotion out of history can lead to a more analytical argument, but it's not necessarily truer because <laughs> the real world is full of emotion and, you know, war and peace is all about emotion. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast and my name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. That was Michael Ridpath you heard there and Michael is a best-selling uh, no- novelist, author of a number of financial thrillers, of Icelandic Scandi murder mysteries, Cold War thrillers and what I'm talking about with Michael today is his novel... Traitor's Gate, which was his first historical fiction novel, and it's set around, rather coincidentally, it's not a coincidence, it's set around the plot to kill Hitler in 1938, which coincided with Neville Chamberlain's visit to Munich. And the reason why it's not a coincidence is that we plan to have his novel as our fiction book of the month, and... He, uh, his novel is coincided with the new movie that's out on Netflix called uh, Munich, Edge of War, I think it's called, starring uh, Jeremy Irons. And Michael's novel was written in 2013, so well before uh, the film was made, which was based on a Robert Harris novel. And Michael's novel's fantastic, I do recommend it. Elsewhere at Aspects of History, we've got a couple of articles on our website, on our homepage, that are timely. As I'm sure you're aware, on Thursday, the 27th, that was uh, last Thursday, it was Holocaust Memorial Day. And we have got a very good article, important article, about heroes of the Holocaust, British heroes of the Holocaust, uh, two of whom met a tragic uh, tragic death, but I do recommend that's on our homepage. That's written by Lynn Smith, who's written a, a really, really great book on on British uh, involvement in the Holocaust. And also, this month coincides with the trial and execution of Charles the First, and so we have a bit of a longer read from Leander Delisle, who is one of our authors. She's written this fantastic piece on the trial of Charles the First. So I do recommend both of those. And then we have a new competition that Aspects of History is going to be running. Planning to release it, publicise it on the 1st of February, but you guys get to hear first. And it is an unpublished novel competition. Plan is for authors to write, you might already have a a book already written, Uh, it's got to be historical fiction, but it can be any any kind of historical fiction. There's a, there'll be a web page going up on a home uh, homepage, so it'll be clear to see. But you will be able to submit your uh, manuscript, and the prize is five hundred pounds to the winner, and a publishing contract with one of the top independent publishers in the country. So. That's a great prize, and it's only a tenner to enter. Anyway, on with my chat with Michael Ridpath. And in our chat, we talk about the plot against Hitler. We talk about Munich. It's a two-parter. Uh, second part 
we will be discussing communist spies in the 30s. We talk a bit about the Scandi, Icelandic murder world. And we talk a bit about financial crime as well. Now, I recommend our chat today for all those budding novelists out there, particularly with the competition in mind. And so you, I'm sure we'll be able to pick up some tips there. And I'll hand you over to me and Michael. I hope you enjoy the show. As ever, you can get hold of me on the Twitter at OllieWCQ. I hope you enjoy. Michael Ribpath, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. So, Michael... Very much. I'm pleased to be here. <laughs> great, great. Um, so, Michael, uh, we're here to, to talk to you because I uh, we're running our fiction book of the month, which we've been doing. Uh, we just started last month, actually. Um, actually, this month, it's January. So, in February, we're going to be running our fiction book of the month based off Traitor's Gate, uh, which is your, I think it was your first venture into historical fiction. Yes, it was. Right? Yes, I was very nervous doing it. Were you? Oh, right. Well, you, well, you didn't need to be nervous. I mean, you, you had a number of... Researched. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, yes, I guess that was... Um, well, I, I suppose you have to do research for all your novels, but um, but it, it, it's it's timely that we're talking to you about this particular subject as well, given that we have a Hollywood movie out at the moment on, um, I watched it on Netflix, um, based off uh, the Robert Harris novel, who must have read yours and um, been inspired. Because you both deal with a very similar plot, well, the same plot. Um, but I just thought we could talk a little bit about that first, and then we'll get on more to historical fiction as a, a genre and we'll talk a little bit about some of your other novels. Um, so, so with Traitor's Gate, it's based around the 1938 um, plot amongst the German military and the German intelligence service. So I, I was interested to know, I mean, first, it was your first venture into historical fiction, and you've mentioned that you had to do a lot of research, and you were a bit nervous about that. I mean, so, so how did you go about doing the research in a different way to your other thriller novels? Well, my, my financial thrillers have been set in different countries. Um, and I started off with ones I knew and then ventured into places I didn't know. So I got a sort of real system for finding out all about Brazil or South Africa or Wyoming. And a lot of it involved talking to people. And so I, I was pretty good at asking, finding characters like the ones who'd be in my novel and, and talking to them. So the idea of trying to do that with something historical, especially when everyone is pretty nearly dead. I mean, I think Conrad would have been 100 102 when um, he's, he's the hero of my, my book when, I, uh, you know, today, as it were, or when I was writing it. So therefore, I, I was worried about how I would be able to deal with um, essentially a foreign country, because the past is a foreign country, um, without actually being able to talk to people. And also, um, the, the, the other problem, of course, is um, a lot of it is set in Berlin. And Berlin then, I mean, Paris in 1938 is a lot like Paris now. Berlin in 1938 is completely different from um, Berlin now. It's been rearranged a, a couple of times, sadly. So that, so that worried me too. So um, I decided to um, just read and read and read, especially memoirs. I found those the most useful 
because that's quite similar to talking to someone, isn't it? Because basically in a memoir or autobiography, someone is talking about their, their life. And so I, I would do that. And I was very um, diligent about whenever someone described something in a memoir, I would, I, or a novel even, I would, I would copy it out. Uh, so then if I was writing about the Café Yosti in, in Berlin, I had a couple of descriptions, contemporary descriptions, and I could sort of paraphrase those or come up with something similar. I, mean, I didn't actually use the same words in, in, in my novel, but they're, they're, almost all the places are based on descriptions written by someone at the time. Um, and I think, I, you know, I, I was nervous. It was a new genre for me. I felt confident about writing financial thrillers because of my city background. I, you know, I, I thought I'd feel better if I just, uh, as I say, researched the hell out of it. And did you go to Berlin itself when you were when you were researching the, the novel? Yes, I did. Yes. I found a very good map from 1945, which was just a few years out of date. But um, I, I went around Berlin with this map trying to figure out where everything was. And I found a guy called uh, Nick Gay, who ran, maybe still does, a, a company called Berlin Walks. And I went around with him and he knew what was in Berlin now and what had been there in 1938. And of course, Berlin was changing rapidly then. So things were being built in 1938 that weren't there in 1936 and then got destroyed, you know, in 1942. So it was quite complicated working out what buildings were where and what they looked like, um, in particular the Reich Chancellery, which is where the plot to assassinate Hitler was supposed to take place. Um, you know, that, that had just been built, I think, in, by the time my book was, was taking place. Uh, so that, that, was, that was all a little complicated. The plot itself is, is it's, it's really interesting because as you've, you've mentioned in, in the novel that, and it happens in the film as well, that Chamberlain is, is aware of the plot, isn't he? Yes. And, and as to whether it, um, I mean, and, and that's a, a matter of historical fact, I think. And yes. whether he, uh, whether it influences his decisions, who knows? I mean, my sense is that it's, it would have been difficult for him to have based too many of his decisions on something that was so, um, you know, up in the air as to whether it would be a success or not. Yes, I think so. I mean, I, the, 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 the plot was, was just to describe the, what actually happened with the plot. There were a bunch of junior officers um, and in the in the Wehrmacht and the Abwehr, which was the German secret service. And they had put together a plan to overthrow Hitler. Um, in order to do that, they needed to show the German people that really there was no choice to avoid a war, but to get rid of him. So they needed Hitler to be just about on the point of starting a war which of course he was in September 1938 because he planned to invade Czechoslovakia. So in order for this plot to work, the conspirators needed Britain to hold firm and say that they would declare war on Germany if Germany invaded Czechoslovakia. So they sent emissaries to Britain to say, look, hold firm and then we'll get rid of Hitler. So when I read this for the first time and I realized that Ch Chamberlain knew that they were planning to get overthrow Hitler and they're all ready they're all in a in a flat just you know yards away from the chancellor it, it, it was all worked out it, it sort of made me furious because Chamberlain could just have have stood up to Hitler and then what would have happened is Hitler would have ordered the invasion of Czechoslovakia the army would have turned around and uh, attacked the SS and and killed Hitler. So it was infuriating. But then, um, and what the nice thing about writing a novel is that you always start thinking about the other person's point of view. And of course, Chamberlain, the, 
these were rumors. There are all kinds of rumors coming from all sorts of people. And he wasn't sure that he trusted the German generals, which, you know, they were the people who fought the First World War. They were, they were the enemy. So in some ways I can sympathize with him then, but what, um, what I can't sympathize with him is he, he really felt he had a connection with Hitler. And he felt that something, if he did something dramatic, like fly to Germany, which he did just a, a week or so before the Munich, uh, to, to see Hitler and say, look, you and I can look at each other in the eye and say, we're going to maintain peace for Europe. He thought he, he could do this because he could deal with a common man and Hitler was a common man, um, which of course is completely wrong. And he totally misjudged the situation. So whilst I sort of sympathise with him a bit for being wary of the generals, and I certainly sympathise with him for wanting peace, because that was his main aim. And I can understand why if your main aim in foreign policy is to have peace, declaring war doesn't seem like a good way of going about it. I really think he's, um, he overestimated his own ideas about Hitler, and he, he should have known by then, as other people in the cabinet did, that, that you, you couldn't trust Hitler. So I'm I'm less sympathetic than I think Robert Harris is to him. Oh, it's interesting that um, Chamberlain thought that he had, so because I think he described Hitler as a man he could do business with, or, or something yes. similar yes. to that. Yes. Yeah, he called his plan Plan Z. So he kind of um, cooked it up with uh, Horace Wilson, and um, Plan Z was this this dramatic gesture to to get in an aeroplane and fly off and do diplomacy that way. Well, I suppose, you know, it sounds like an appealing concept, but his, um, his confidence about getting on with Hitler was, and obviously that the peace treaty, that bit of paper meant something, was, 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 was misplaced and should have been obviously misplaced. Oh, to be a fly on the wall watching the two men discuss this, because Hitler doesn't strike me as an individual that would be particularly good at hiding his feelings or, or you know, uh, dealing with Chamberlain in such a way that would give Chamberlain the idea that he had uh, a man he could do, do business mm. with. Um, mm. But it, it's extraordinary to think, though, that, you know, effectively he was trusting this man who so consistently throughout his career, leading up to 38, I mean, none of this came as a surprise to um, many people, but I guess we, we've, we've yeah. all got the benefit of hindsight. I mean, it's interesting, actually, because the uh, Chamberlain gave his invitation and um, the uh, Hitler wasn't, you know, received this piece of paper saying that Chamberlain wanted to talk to him at what, in Munich. And he almost didn't go with it. I mean, he really wanted to attack Czechoslovakia. So he almost went ahead anyway. But in the end, he decided to, um, you know, to talk to, to uh, Chamberlain and get, and get the Sudetenland and all the Czech fortifications anyway. Well, one of the other interesting things about that was, which I hadn't appreciated, was the German general staff had wargamed um, an attack on Czechoslovakia. And their uh, views were that the French would win. So basically, the Czechs would hold out against the German army and the French tanks would roll in across the Rhine and um, the Germans would lose the war, which, of course, was not what the British or French thought at all and, and not what people think now. And so, so that interested me. So one of the reasons why the Germans were so keen to get rid of Hitler was they thought they would lose a, a war against Czechoslovakia. And then an interesting, you know, a further interesting thing about that is you sort of scratch your heads, well, hang on, you know, the, the Second World was all about Germany, German tanks outmaneuvering the French. And then I, I've read a subsequent book, Shadows of War, uh, which had a similar kind, which was about um, 
the blitzkrieg in France and, and, and Britain uh, either staying in the war or not afterwards. And I read about the German war games in 1940 as well, and they had the same problem even then. So if the Germans um, attacked through uh, the Low Countries, then the French could, in theory, uh, just roll their tanks over, over the, um, the Western Wall. But then one of the German planners said the French generals will never do that. Um, you know, they're just, it's just not in their, what well, we would say now in their DNA, but they would, it would, they would never even consider that. So that from that stage on, the German war games assumed that the French wouldn't attack and they didn't. And then uh, the rest, as they say, is history. But it's, uh, it's interesting that had the French been more dynamic, um, then, you know, the war itself may well have turned out differently because the French had just as many tanks and just as good tanks as the Germans. They were just sort of completely outmaneuvered. Yeah, we were talking to, uh, I was talking to Roger Morehouse, um, who wrote, funnily enough, wrote a, a very good book, book on um, plots against Hitler. But he, yes, he did, he, yes. Yes. Uh, and, and he's written an um, uh, excellent book on the invasion of Poland in 1939. Right. But Interestingly, you know, the, the Germans invade Poland and then the, the allies, France and Britain, did just nothing happens. They drop leaflets. And that's about the extent of, of their military but involvement. Actually, the French did. They fired a few. The they did, did fire a few volleys. And there was a, a, yeah, but I think it was under, it's under sort of 300 people were killed in the initial sort of uh, the phony war yeah. kind of thing. Um, which I guess amounts to nothing. I mean, nowadays that number would be significant, but yeah, the allies were just so passive. It's, it's, it is amazing. Um, so, yeah. so the other, um, uh, the, the other interesting um, part about that whole plot that, um, that I know you had toyed with including in your novel was the Von Fritz affair, which was quite an important factor in turning a lot of German generals against Hitler um, that led up up to that plot. Yeah, I mean, what that was was it was uh, General von Fritsch was the commander in chief of the German army, and there was essentially a blackmail plot to um, by the Nazis to show that he'd gone off with a toy boy somewhere or a rent boy somewhere. Um, and it turned out it wasn't Fritsch; it was some other person called Frisch who'd done it. But uh, so the whole thing was a, was a bit of a scandal. But Fritsch had to resign, um, and there's a. It did, it did shake the general staff. And in the first drafts of my novel, I included that. But what I, what I found when um, a problem I had writing the book was I was determined to put in all the interesting history. And I lost, um, I lost the plot. Basically, I, I lost the plot of the thriller. So thrillers need to be, well, I think they need to be fast-paced, streamlined, concise. And so I had to chop that out of, of later drafts. And that made the story better um even though i lost quite a lot of color but life's like that well that's really interesting so as a and particularly i guess as a historical novelist are you always trying to juggle okay i've got this amount of history i've got to put that in but then you know how do you keep it fast-paced are you always worrying about that when you're writing yes yes and, and uh, in retrospect a problem i had with traitors gate is there is an awful lot of real history there's a lot of real people and that puts a structure because the real people were in certain places at certain times and they did certain things and these events happened on known dates. So it can be quite difficult to, you can't, you can't mess with that. So um, normally when you write a thriller, you can, you can move scenes around or take a week and compress it into two days or 24 hours, which always 
ups the tempo. Um, the more historical events and historical people you have, the less you can do that. Um, and the sort of structure of history isn't necessarily the ideal structure for a, for a fast plot. Um, and it's important to, you know, the, my books are entertaining, so it's important that people should get grabbed and want to turn the page. And if um, you know, the, wrong, the wrong thing happens in the wrong place and takes a long time, uh, it kind of screws that up. Yeah, I, I guess it's something you're always wrestling with. I was talking to uh, on an earlier podcast with a, a novelist, Anne O'Brien, who who writes a lot about the medieval period. She had she had written an interesting piece for us about this, and in particular, historians taking a view about historical novelists and saying, well, you know, dismissing historical novelists that they just make things up, which. I think is a little bit unfair, but she, there are a couple of historians, well-known, um, I think Neil Ferguson and David Starkey have said such things, but it's, it, it's, it, it's unfair because... Well, I found, I mean, I, I read history at university, and one of the frustrating things about when I studied history, and it's probably, it's maybe less, so, less true now, is that it was all about um, economic forces, structural forces, societies. You know, the great man theory of history was... Um, was debunked. You weren't supposed to put those in, in your essays. And um, I can understand all that, but actually quite often the personality and characters of the people involved seem to me to be important and what they were trying to do and why they were trying to do it. So one of the reasons why I like writing historical novels is those are based on, they have to be based on characters and you have to try and think Okay, what was Chamberlain really thinking? How, why was he behaving? Or, or the people who worked for him, or in my case, Conrad, who's British and Theo, who's German, um, what their background was, what they thought about peace and war and Hitler and Germany and Britain. And when you do that and you explore that in a novel, you, you've, you come across all kinds of things that historians aren't really allowed to write about um, in proper academic history because they're not allowed to put themselves in the minds of individuals and see what it was that these people were thinking and especially feeling. And, um, you know, I can see why taking the emotion out of history can lead to a more analytical um, argument. But it's not necessarily truer because <laughs> the real world is full of emotion. And, you know, war and peace is all about emotion um, and character and and stereotypes too. I mean, the other thing is you, you're not allowed to say, if you're a historian, that, you know, the Germans are a militaristic country that always invades Poland or France or something. But if, if you spend a lot of time reading memoirs of Prussians in the 1930s, you know, they clearly are militaristic. I mean, it's just obvious. You know, they are, they, and also um, Gestapo interviews. I mean, you know, we have ways of making you talk. Gestapo offers actually did say that in German accents to people they're interrogating. And, and well, that's they, quite a common phrase, is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, well, what happens is it, it appears in a memoir from someone who was interrogated by the Gestapo. And then in the 1950s, everyone uses it. And then it becomes, you know, it ends up in LOLO or all the or Monty Python or what have you. So, um, but these things are based on real, real people's experiences. And I think, um, it's important that historical novels can uh, illuminate real people's experiences. And so, yes, I, I mean, they're clearly not a substitute for history at all, but I think they're a useful addition to help you understand what's going on. One thing that, that and, and this is actually probably very relevant to, to Traitor's Gate, 
which is we all know that Hitler survives or, you know, there's no, there's no attempt on his life and we know war happens. What's going through your head when you're trying to keep the, the, the plot uh, moving along with that? I guess the bigger story, everyone knows the, you know, everyone knows what's going to happen in that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, I was slightly worried at first because I found this, this plot to overthrow him in 1930. I thought, this is great. I want to write about this. I really want to write about this, but there's a problem in that we know Hitler isn't going to die. So, so then I thought about Day of the Jackal, which is a shame. I wish I'd never thought about Day of the Jackal because I thought, you know, Frederick Forsyth can do it, then I can. And so I read that and I saw how, how that seemed to work. And we all know de Gaulle's alive now or was alive afterwards. Um, so I thought I could just, you know, go ahead with it and it would be fine. Um, and it wasn't quite. Um, and so I rewrote the book and rewrote the book. And then I gave the book to a friend of mine who is a, a very good screenwriter and playwright. And he, he liked it, but he said, the problem is, as you said, we all know Hitler's not gonna die at the end. So you need something at the beginning. Some, he said a diary or a journal entry or something, which makes the reader worry about something in the future um, all the way through the book that isn't Hitler dying. And as soon as he said that, I thought, yeah, um, I can solve this. So what I did was I wrote, a, a, the, the, my protagonist is someone called Conrad. So page one is a letter from Conrad to his father from Berlin saying, I'm going to, essentially, I'm going to kill Hitler tomorrow no one will know it's me because I'm pretending to be a, a German officer. Um, when it happens, I'll probably be dead, but I wanted you to know that I'm doing this because I think it's the only way to preserve peace. And I know that how important that is to you. So the reader having read that, then all the way through the book, the same book, instead of thinking, well, we know Hitler's going to live. So what's the big deal? Of thinking, how is Conrad going to kill Hitler? Is he going to try and kill Hitler? If he fails, is he going to die in the process? So they, the reader is then reading the pages to try and find out what's going to happen to Conrad and Hitler rather than just Hitler. So it was, it was amazing how just one page at the very beginning of a book can change the experience of the whole, the whole thing um, and very pleasing and got me out of a hole, I think. <laughs> Hearing you talk about it, it's a, it's a real, it really does take you into the mind of a historical fiction writer. Um, it, it's... Yeah, I mean, one of the things you should do as, as, a, as a writer of any fiction is try and put your mind in the reader. So put yourself in the reader's mind. And, and, and I find when I'm reading stuff through, I try and feel what the reader feels and think, well, what's, what are the reader's questions at this point? What are they worried about? What are they scared about? And once you can feel how the reader's feeling, then you can try and manipulate that by changing the, the order of re revelation. Uh, now, one, one part about your writing that I quite liked uh, as I was reading Chaser's Gate was you, you've been quite effective at... Uh, capturing the way people spoke in that period and I wondered right. about that because because they didn't speak like we speak now you know there are uh, fewer like no one says that word or anything obviously yeah. but um but there are other parts you know there's that sort of clipped British way of speaking isn't there uh, you know the sort of brief encounter um Trevor Howard type way of of, of speaking how, how did you um because uh, because often that's not captured in TV shows that we see that are set in those periods. Was that was that, is that a challenge or is that relatively easy? You just kind no, of... it's irritating. <laughs> yeah, well, what I what I did was I read um, I read novels. So I read a lot of Evelyn Waugh, Graham Greene, Nancy Mitford, 
Uh, and there's a big difference in the way men and women speak too. So women tend to use a lot of hyperbole and exaggeration. So lots of frightfullys and dreadfullys and such a bore and all that kind of stuff. So basically, I mean, I've got a I've got a sheet here which I just keep at hand by my desk, which is about three pages of 1930s male and female speech. And when I'm doing dialogue, I go through it all and see if I can put, um, you know, instead of someone saying it's a little dull, I'd say he's he's a frightful bore or something. So just just looking at these words and saying, well, can I put them into to what's there? And you don't need to do it very much, but you do need to do it a bit. And you do need to try and um, get rid of get rid of anachronisms, which is difficult, um, but quite. I have a very good copy editor who who says, did they really say that in the 1930s? I mean, the word establishment, for example, um, I was I'm pretty sure that was in Traders Gate or wasn't because I thought um, they were dealing with the British establishment, but the word establishment was first used in the 1950s, I think. Really? Um, yeah, I think so, yes. Um, I'd have to double check, and this is all about double checking. Of course, yeah. First used in the 1950s. So, um, so things like that are, uh, I mean, a good Oxford dictionary can give some of the answers to that, uh, but it's, um, yeah, it's fun, it's fun. But having done all that, it really frustrates me when I see TV and films set in the 1930s where they don't get the speech right. And, and what particularly frustrates me is that they get the props and the clothing exactly right. They have people who are real experts at that. My, my daughter's an extra on these historical things quite often. And she says they go to huge efforts to get the uniforms right, the, um, you know, the clothing right. And you know, I, I think they, they could just employ one expert to listen to the speech or look at the speech and just cross out the things that wouldn't 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 be there or or, or just change uh, some of the words into something more contemporary. So that's what I think production companies should do. Yeah, I, I, I was reading um, uh, when I remember when I was reading the Rema remains of the day, the Kazuo Ishiguro novel, and it it was extraordinary to me that it. A, a Japanese writer could capture the language so effectively, and obviously they do it well in the film, but you're right, it's, it's, um, it's not done very often. I do hope that was of interest, and particularly to those budding novelists out there, especially with the competition in mind, once again, that competition is for those who are unpublished novelists, who have a historical fiction book, and want to enter the competition, the prize is £500 and a publishing contract with one of the top independent publishers in the country. It's going to be launching 1st of February and it will run till June. So there's time, if you haven't written one, to write one. There's more detail in next week's show. In the meantime, thank you and good night.